Hello, welcome to the Musics in Japan. A conversational podcast about daily life for an American couple living long-term in Japan. So lately I've been thinking a lot about my health and everything I have going on there and about life with a rare and chronic illness. So I have hereditary corporal porphyria, which is a blood disorder. And hard to spell. <laughs> Very hard to spell. And no one, I've yet to meet a doctor who has met somebody with HCP. Other than you. Yeah, other than me. Yeah. Because we went to Oregon in the United States. Right. Where they have the two leading specialists in the U.S. who specialize in HCP. And I was the first person they were meeting with HCP because it's extremely rare. Yes. So for me, having a really rare illness that's chronic, it's a little bit challenging because nobody really understands what to do for me or how to help me. So I have to do a lot of research on my own and be my own best advocate. And I think anybody with a chronic illness needs to be their own best advocate. But I think it's an interesting case because for HCP, there is a definitive lab test. So there's yes. the lab testing and lab testing said, yep, you've got HCP. So I think that your doctors believe you have HCP, but don't know how to help you. Yeah. And I think a lot of people with chronic illness, their doctors don't believe they have the illness and that's the barrier to help. Mm. I think there's also a good portion of people out there that like doctors agree that yes, you have this thing right. and don't know what to do when it's chronic. Cause like, yeah, absolutely. my lupus is, Lupus is really well understood for in comparison to HCP. Right. But they still don't know what to do for my lupus. They don't. And I should say the treatments that they suggest, I don't want. Like, I don't want the steroids and I don't want any transfusions because for the HCP, it's blood transfusions. And then for the lupus, it's steroids. And so I don't like the standard treatment because of what it would do to my body. No, I feel the same way. Like epilepsy, there's a lot of different treatments for it, but they all come with side effects. Yeah. And so it, I think with most chronic illnesses, there's a balance between the side effects of the treatments and the effects of the illness itself. What I find interesting about your epilepsy specifically is the difference that taking naps and Valium like not doing them in conjunction, but sometimes in conjunction. But it's day and night for me when you're when you take Valium regularly and when you take naps regularly. Right. I feel like you have a, that the frequency of your seizures are greatly reduced. Yes, they are. And Valium is one of those things that it's like if you, if you go into status epilepticus where you are having a continuous general seizure, they would inject you with Valium. Yeah. But it's not recommended as an anti-seizure drug because it doesn't prevent them, as well as other AEDs, anti-epileptic drugs. But for me, the effects of those drugs were terrible. Like, they made me unable to think um, from carbamazepine. I lost basically all of my teeth. I think I have four real teeth left. You have way more than four real teeth. No, no. I mean, I have lots of crowns and things. My teeth started shattering. Yeah. But no, I don't want people to have this vision of you as like this toothless dude. You've got teeth. I've had good dental work. Yeah. 
But like, I think your bottom front teeth are all yours. Yes, those are the four ones that are all mine. <laughs> so none of your molars are yours. None of my molars are mine. Neither of my incisors are mine. You know, my top front teeth is a bridge. So there's a lot of teeth that I'm... Well, those are yours. You still got the receipts. <laughs> <laughs> I broke my bottom. <laughs> exactly. So I think... It might be helpful for people to understand the type of epilepsy that you have. Yeah, so epilepsy has a lot of different, I don't know if there's different types of epilepsy, there's different types of seizures. So the types of seizures that I have are um, what, what used to be called complex partial seizures, and now they're called focal impaired awareness seizures mm -hmm. which means that unlike in the movies i don't fall down and just start convulsing and i so that's the main type of seizure i have i also mm -hmm. have nocturnal seizures which is where i do convulse but only when i'm sleeping yes and i have simple seizures so most people have simple seizures at some point in their life which is just where your muscle starts twitching randomly that's a simple seizure but i get those a lot yeah so and those are just not even annoying sometimes they're interesting because they do things to my muscles that i could not consciously do mm -hmm. like if i have one on my thigh my thigh will jump like 50 times in 10 seconds mm -hmm. with no effect on any other muscle so it's like huh that's kind of cool my thigh is like wobbling <laughs> so those don't hurt don't have any lasting effects yeah. But they're indicative of a general pattern. And then there's, of course, the generalized or what used to be called tonic-clonic seizures where you fall down and convulse. And the tonic is your muscles relaxing and clonic is your muscles seizing up. Yeah. So something that I have found very interesting about your seizures are sometimes they're connected to emotionality and emotional response. And that was something I was unaware of. I've learned so much more about epilepsy since marrying you and since dating you and getting to know you. And it really does affect every aspect of your life. Yeah. And I know it did as a student, too. So a lot of kids, I, I don't think that I had. Because the thing with seizures is that, that without an EEG, it's hard to say what type is what. Yeah. So I had an EEG study, so that's how I know that I have complex partial seizures, and that's specifically their temporal lobe, for the most part, that I do have some frontal lobe involvement, yada, yada, yada. But I didn't have absence seizures, which is more common in children, for them to have absence seizures where they basically just pause and then come back with no awareness that they were paused. And often people outgrow those. But yeah. it causes them to be evaluated as like lazy and inattentive students. Mm. So I wasn't diagnosed with seizures until I was in my 20s. Yeah, the diagnosis process is hard because I wasn't diagnosed with hereditary corporal porphyria, HCP, until I was in my 30s. Right. And I wasn't diagnosed with lupus until I was in my 30s. While um, you were in a hospital stay for a porphyria attack. Yes. And so for me, the damage that happened to my body over those 30 years of, of no diagnosis was significant. Right. And I think that we 
I don't know. There's something needs to change in the way that things are diagnosed. I don't know what. I don't have the answers, but I just think something needs to change. Maybe this the spirit and energy of like, hey, you know, something's going on with you. I hear you saying that something's going on with you, and let's do, let's really get into this differential diagnosis and let's rule things out and rule things in and and do a lot of tests. With that said. I've been very fortunate in my life in that I've always had health insurance. Right. So I've always had the ability to go to the doctor. And so it hasn't been um, an issue of access for me because I've been very, very fortunate. And I do feel like I've been very privileged to always have good medical insurance and to always have access to some of the, the top doctors, the best doctors in the world by geographical location because I was able to go to specialist hospitals and see specialists in the United States. And when I was hospitalized, they did bring a specialist um, to come in and diagnose my lupus. So all of that came with a huge price tag. Yes. Even with the insurance. So to well, me... I, I know that the bill that we were sent, that much most of it was paid by the insurance, was well over a million dollars. Yes. And so when you hear that number for a diagnosis, I feel like without good medical insurance, there's no way that I would have been able to go through the differential diagnosis process because I had to be in hospital to get the diagnosis because of the different tests and the different situations that they needed my body to be in to test for certain things. Well, and I remember the process that you're getting in the hospital too. So, you know, you didn't get diagnosed until you were in your 30s because when you went to the doctor, they would just tell you your complaints are irrelevant. That's just part of being a woman. Just stop complaining so much. Well, I think, too, I had a lot of female problems. And so that, that's what I'm saying. They just got all lumped in as, as this. Well, and my gynecologist were all amazed. My gynecologist never said that. My gynecologist always did a surgery on me. Right. Because I had a lot of cyst issues. And so the fact that I had a lot of female issues with my reproductive system sort of masked the main thing that that diagnoses hereditary corporal porphyria besides you know the urine test is the the way that the pain is located and so even when i was saying i had pain in my lower left quadrant they were saying well no that's being transmitted from the cyst you have on your right ovary yeah because they could every time they looked they found one yeah so i think that I'm not saying your doctors are bad. I'm saying doctors are trained to spot patterns, and so they spot normal patterns. And, you know, sometimes they say, you know, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Yeah. Which only works if you live in a place where horses are dominant. Yes. So, you know, for you, because of your genetic background, because, you know... you genetically, you're Ashkenazi Jewish, you're indigenous. Both of those groups are at higher risk for porphyria. Yes. So you should have been evaluated as at a higher risk for porphyria than the general population. Yes. But I think instead you got told, well, you know, the easiest explanation is that it's just female problems. And then wellness culture says, hey, if you're not feeling good, like get out in the sun go for a walk, do some exercise, like yeah. all of these things that would exacerbate your condition. And then it says, well, if you're not feeling better from it, then you're just not trying hard enough. So for me, I think that a crucial part of the 
diagnosis process is the internet, you know? And I know everyone says, don't Google doctor me and don't Google things. You won't find anything, this, that, and the other. But I feel like, you know what? I am going to Google some stuff because you're not finding out what's going on with me. So I'm going to Google it, get over it. I'm going to do research and I'm going to say, hey, I think this was this is what's going on with me. Give me the test. Yes. And so I, I don't understand why doctors don't just want to give people a test. I, it, they make money off of it, so they're going to profit from it. But it's like they get exasperated and irritated. I was fortunate that my doctor didn't. He was confused and condescending, but he wasn't mean. Okay, I was going to say your doctor didn't because... And he was your primary care physician, and it's probably retired, but not going to mention his name. But when we Googled it, you and I, and and I said, hey, this sounds like porphyria, all of these symptoms. And Mm -hmm. we went to him and said, we think it might be porphyria. He laughed. Yeah. And he said, nobody has porphyria. It is not porphyria. I see you've been Googling or something like that. Yeah. And we said, can you please test her for it anyway? And he did. And he and the test came back and he was like, holy crap, it's porphyria. Yeah. And then he did the good work to educate himself on it and be a really good ally for you in that. Yeah. So for me, I've never been one who's afraid of firing my doctor. Yeah. How do you feel about firing doctors? <laughs> I, I feel like people should fire their doctor more often. I mean, now in Japan, it's a lot easier because I don't have to worry about insurance. But I was always nervous, like that I'd be accused of doctor shopping or diagnosis shopping, or there's like a culture that says that if you see more than one doctor, then the first doctor was right and you just didn't want to hear it. I think Mm. the last doctor that I actually fired was a neurologist who I had an appointment and when I had been waiting for three hours past my appointment time, I left and switched to a different neurologist. Wow, you're like way more patient than me. Well, and the normal was to wait for an hour past my appointment time. He never, ever, ever, not once saw me on time. But three hours, I was just like, no. Yeah, I do. Like, So here in Japan with no appointment, I can go to my doctor any day that he's open. And I've never had to wait more than 15 minutes. Yeah, my doctor too. I have a different doctor. And I see when I go there... There's no appointments taken. I just go there. When people come in, sometimes they'll say, oh, I'm sorry. It's going to take 45 minutes before the doctor could see you. Yeah. Do you want to come back another day? Yeah. And so in the United States, I don't think I ever waited under an hour. No. And so for me, my 90 minutes was When you was had my an cut. appointment. Yeah, when I had an appointment. So I would usually get taken into the room between 30 and 45 minutes after the time of my appointment and then wait an additional 30 minutes. Right. So for me, I always felt like, okay, seeing the doctor is about a two hour thing for a 10 minute appointment. And now here in Japan, it's so much easier. I go in, I talk to the doctor for maybe like five minutes. It's literally like at the most a half hour. Yeah. Mine's about the same. He lives close enough that I, he doesn't live. He works close enough that I can walk. And I go in, I see him. I think the longest I've waited is 20 minutes. The appointment takes maybe 10 minutes at most if I have something to discuss. He takes my blood pressure and my heart rate. He tells me that once again, my aerovals are all fine. I have, you know, no murmur and 
and all of that. We talked about any medication side effects and he writes the prescription and I'm out of there. Yeah. And I, after I pay my $6. So. Yes. I'm just amazed by the difference. And in, it's so interesting to me that a lot of expatriates don't trust Japanese doctors. And I absolutely love my Japanese medical experience, like being in the medical system. And I've gone to the hospital and I do take an interpreter with me when I go to the hospital because I have a doctor that doesn't speak English and my Japanese is nowhere near good enough. So the language thing, I do see that as like a barrier, but my doctor that does speak English, I feel like he's very passive and I do have to tell him what I want. But once I say what I want, I get it and it's not a problem. I, my doctor is also very passive. I think that's Japanese medicine in general. But because I'm a math guy, I look at the outcomes. And the outcomes say that Japanese medical care is superior to American medical care on average. So I think that there are life-saving things that could happen in the United States that wouldn't happen in Japan mm -hmm. at the extreme end of things. But I think it's like talking about, you know, well, what about how billionaires are taxed? Well, that doesn't affect most people. Yeah. So I think if you, you know, don't want your life saved at any cost whatsoever, then Japanese healthcare is better. People live longer and... They're... What do you mean by your life saved at any cost? I think that in Japan, there are... You're less likely to survive, like... Uh, I think, like, in the U.S., there would be a place that if you got in an accident and all four of your limbs were amputated and your neck was severed, they could probably still save your life. I think in Japan, you probably would just die. Okay. So I think that, like... At the you know, there are people without legs and arms that are just fine living their life, right? Absolutely. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Lost all four of them at the same time and, like, you're bleeding from the neck. I'm saying, like, just massive accident. You're saying that you're less likely to be kept alive in a vegetative state. I'm saying that that in a Japanese hospital, they might not be able to get together a team of 20 surgeons to save your life the way uh, okay. that they could in the U.S., Okay. Because there's a much bigger focus on preventative medicine. So my doctor is happy that I come see him every month mm -hmm. because it lets him monitor how I'm doing. He like looks at what my blood pressure was before, which my blood pressure is always excellent and all of that. I know that your doctor, because you have two blood illnesses, always does blood draws and talks over with you the numbers between them when you go see your blood doctor. Yeah. And and so there's a focus on overall health and wellness rather than fixing the illness. And I think for me, as someone who has chronic illness and disability, that's been more mentally healthy. Because in the U.S., a lot of the neurologists I encountered were like, either you take a high enough dose of anti-epileptic drugs that you never have a seizure or you are non-compliant. And it doesn't matter what the side effects are. So for me, I had an interesting problem in the U.S. I had access to too much pain medication. Yeah. And so... And I don't think that would be the case anymore. This was 15 years ago. Yeah. So 15 years ago, I had access to too much pain medication. And then here in Japan, 
I have access to what I feel like is a working dose and there's no no sign of addiction or anything. Tolerance over time equals addiction, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm able to take tramadol yeah. every day for pain. And that's just my lot in life for the rest of my life. And it feels very comforting for me that I'm not going to... Because in the United States, for me, the drug laws changed so much and the prescribing laws changed so much. The reason I had access to too much pain medication is because I was going through a pain center. Right. And their, their whole thing, they're set up to give high doses of opioids. And so after I had several surgeries and after a major surgery, I got kind of stuck on that, that loop of doing a lot of heavy pain meds. Feel very fortunate that I wasn't addicted, but it was a big concern. Like I didn't think I could live life without high pain medication. So having reducing the amount of pain meds that I'm taking has made me lucid again, right? And present again and here. But it was a battle because my it affected my the pain center in my brain not having it and getting off it. So it wasn't an issue of addiction. It was an issue of my pain tolerance had decreased so much for what I thought would be pain that I could function through versus pain that that the medicine can take care of. Because I thought I should the goal should be to be pain free. Right. And in Japan, the goal is to manage your pain so that you can still function, but also accept that every day you're going to be in pain. You have a chronic pain disorder. That's just life. Right. And so I like the, I kind of think. For me, I feel stronger in Japan than I did in the United States because I feel like Japan, at least for me as someone with chronic illness, tells me to my face, suck it up. Yes. But gives me the resources so that I can cope with it. No, I don't think that that Japan is the place for everybody with chronic illness. I do think socialized medicine is the place for people with chronic illness just because of money. But for my personality and my temperament, I like being knowing where the boundaries are and being told, we'll help you up to this point. And then if you can't do better than this, you're on your own. It helped me say, okay, I'm in horrible, excruciating pain today, but I've got to get up. I've got to go to work. I've got to get moving. And I don't know. That doesn't sound nice, though. Well, I think there's a difference. I think in the U.S., what they were saying is it's possible for you to be pain free. Yes. And you would say, okay, I'm not pain-free. Can I have more pain medicine? Yes. And they said, yes, here's more pain medicine. You said, I'm still not pain-free. Can I have more pain medicine? And then at some point they said, whoa, you're on too much pain medicine. Well, they never cut me off. They never cut you off, but they said, whoa, you're on too much pain medicine. They like crept past where they were comfortable with. Yes. Saying that you could be pain-free. Yes. Without ever telling you that. Instead, they blamed you. They said, well, you know, you've developed tolerance and all of this. Rather than saying, honestly, this pain is not amenable to treatment with this type of drug. Yes. We don't have the drugs that will take away this pain. And so for me, that feels like the cultural difference between Japan and the United States. The United States was really focused on me being pain-free. And Japan is really focused on me having functionality. I would say quality of life. I feel like it's functionality. Yeah, it probably is. A lot, <laughs> a lot of stuff in Japan is is functionality of like, can you make it to work? Yes. Can you still work? Because it is a work focused 
society, at least here in Nagoya, in my experience, has been they're very pro-work and very work-focused and get up and be able to work. And so what that means is that I've had to get to a place, and it's, it's taken me a while to get to this place, to accept that I'm going to be sick for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. That was a tough one to learn at 30, and it's I still kind of struggle with it. Because I was chasing that cure, and there isn't a cure for anything I have. And also having to face that every day I'm going to be in pain. Right. Every day is going to be painful. That was really, really hard for me because I did buy into the fact that I could be pain-free. And that just wasn't the case. But now knowing what the bottom line is and knowing what my existence is, I feel like I've been able to adjust and thrive. I feel like that too. And you're not at maximum pain every day. No, I'm not at maximum pain every day. So I I think that that getting the tramadol lets you be in less pain than maximum pain every day. So there are yeah. some days where you're still like, wow, I'm in way more pain. So it can still function as an indicator that something is wrong. Yes. It can still function as an indicate, like an early indicator that you're having a lupus flare, that you're having a porphyria attack, that something that, or just that you're getting the cold, uh, yeah. you know, a cold. So I think that in the U.S., the goal was to suppress all symptoms. And I found that was the treatment that was given to me, too, was, like, suppress all seizures. Yeah. And I know, like, from reading the literature, that if I could reduce my seizures to zero, that's, like, the best outcome epilepsy-wise. But it doesn't give me the highest quality of life. Yeah, because if you reduce your seizures to zero, you can't think. Right. At that point, you're just numb and kind of a flat line and and i'm not saying that this is true for everybody i'm saying no, no, that no. this for is some, true for, for you some people the drugs work fantastically yeah so i know that you don't prescribe drugs in your practice it's not legal for you to yeah i'm not a medical doctor but you do refer to a medical doctor for people who need yeah i have medication. a psychiatrist that yeah. i work with so i don't want anybody to think that we're you know anti-medication both of us have medications that we take as we mentioned yeah. Some people need medication that fixes everything. Some people need medication to bring things to a tolerable level. And some people don't need medication at all. Yeah. And so for me, I think something that's different in the way that I practice as a therapist, at least my clients say that this is different than other experiences they've had, is that they can say, I don't want to be on medication. And I'll say, okay. Right. You know, I just let them know what's available to them and what my understanding of where the pharmacology is at. And if I think it could benefit them. And there are some people that I've witnessed people that take medication and it they're completely in a better state. And I've also witnessed people that take medication and it has no effect. So I don't feel like taking medication guarantees better. And I wish that I had had that message earlier in my medical journey. Um, everybody was telling me, hey, take this and you'll be better. And I didn't like chasing better, which is how I sort of developed the mantra, more good days than bad. Right. Because that's my goal now. Because better for me was just a toxic dynamic. And just, I was just felt like I was just circling the drain, you know, because I wasn't functioning. I wasn't present. I was just making it from pain appointment to pain appointment. And that was it. And sometimes not even to pain appointment to pain appointment. Sometimes I'd have to get supplemental appointments in between. And I felt like I was spending my entire life had become about getting medicated and getting my medication. Right. And now my life is 
more about balancing and figuring out what I need and listening to my body and it feels healthier. And so my hope is that everybody with a long-term chronic illness will take that long-term view and say, okay, what can I do to get my life to a place where I could do 10 more years of this? Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And, and in the U.S., I saw doctors kind of bully you because of the medical system. I remember one of the times you were hospitalized. You'd been in the hospital for about a week. And the doctor came in and said she needs to have a surgery. Said to me when you were sleeping, she needs to have a surgery. And I said, she doesn't want a surgery. And they came back when you're awake and said, you need to have surgery. And you said, I don't want surgery because the MRI had shown that you had a perforated bowel. Yeah. But this had happened to you before. And it was like micro perforations that healed. It's part of the porphyria. Yeah. And they said, well, if you don't have the surgery, then I'm going to discharge you and say that you're AMA against medical advice. Yeah. And, you know, that's not just the doctor saying, I'm going to say you're annoying. In the U.S., that meant that insurance wouldn't pay for any of the stay. Yes. That meant... Which is what you told him. If you do that, the insurance won't pay for it. Yeah. And then he said, well, I just want you to know how serious it is. And then they switched from telling me to get surgery every day to uh, taking an MRI every day. So right. every day they would come and it was so, they were taking MRIs so frequently that they were using a mobile MRI right. to bring it to my room and take it every day, sometimes more than once a day. Right. So I think that in the U.S. there is that kind of bullying that happens because the reason that they relented when we said, well, that means what the insurance won't pay for it is, and we said, and we won't either. Yeah. Because they do try and... I think not all doctors, but some doctors do try and use that to say, look, you can either do what I say or it's going to cost you a quarter of a million dollars. Yes. And that just doesn't happen under socialized medicine because there's not that financial hammer to hit people with. So I'm not as angry at the American medical experience as you are. I don't have any resentment or anger, even though... I had a couple of unnecessary surgeries that later on research revealed to me that they were unnecessary and they did jack me up a little bit. Um, I still have a lot of forgiveness for that and compassion for where they were coming from. I really don't believe that any of my doctors set out to harm me. I don't think so either. I think the problem is structural, but I think that I do have more upset and anger about it than you do because I was the observer. Yeah. I'm not saying I was hurt more. I think you were hurt more. But I think of it like my nocturnal seizures. Mm-hmm. I don't remember them. They don't affect me. Like the next day I wake up more tired than I would if I hadn't had them. Yeah. But I know from talking with you. You've also woken up with bruises and knots and kinks. and Yeah. But I know from talking with you that it's very traumatic to see them. Yeah. So I think it's a case where being the observer... All I'm seeing is is all the bad stuff that's happening. I don't have your internal state. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm I'm more upset. I'm not upset about the way that I was treated, like by the medical system. Mm-hmm. I'm upset by the way that you were treated. That makes sense. It's coming from a loving place, and I receive that. For me, 
my hope is that people listening to this, I'm hoping to give them hope. Yes. But it sounds very hopeless. And I feel like even in the United States, I feel like you can get good medical treatment. I think you can get good medical treatment. I think that sometimes you have to go through a few different systems. And I think for some things, there is no good medical treatment. Yeah. And that more doctors need to be willing to say that for this, there is no good medical treatment. Yes, that I wish doctors would say. I wish they had been up front with me and saying, hey, there's no good treatment for you. All we can do is manage this. Right. And really be clear with people when management is the only thing we can do and try to stop it from progressing. And here's the things that you can do on your own. I feel like there needs to be more empowerment of the patient and my hope is that people will advocate for themselves and become their own best advocate and say, hey, you know what, this is what I want. This is what I'm looking for. And for me, diagnosis was not the miracle I, I hoped it would be. No. I thought that diagnosis would lead to cure, and it did not. It didn't even come close to leading to cure. And it led to a lot of confusion and misunderstanding on my part in terms of what to do because I when I went and saw the the people in Oregon they're like yeah we don't know what to do for you either yeah what do you mean you're the experts (laughs) yeah and so it was really really quite challenging and like even the experts were saying because I don't want the transfusions I don't want because they don't help right and I knew that because I had a wonderful group that I belonged to wonderful group of ladies that had uh, porphyria and talking about their different experiences and there was one that got heme regularly and so being able to communicate with her before and after the treatment I was able to see that okay for me that wasn't a big enough payday right for everything that all the side effects of the treatment and the health risks with the treatment so that's another part of of for me av- advocating for yourself is finding a community mm-hmm. of individuals who have the same illness. And I feel like if I can find a community for porphyria, then I, I feel like there's communities for other illnesses as well. And I don't think that these communities are wonderful and perfect. Cause I'll be honest, I outgrew the community. It was really great for knowledge and I shared my experience and I shared my knowledge with them. But once I got, the base knowledge and understanding of what I'm going to do and how I'm going to live, I really didn't need the group as much. Right. And so for me, knowing how much you need and what you need is was part of the process. I think so, because I think that group helped you to kind of reintegrate into having a social community. Yes. Because being hospitalized for so long was very isolating. Yes. Because, you know, when we were in California and you were hospitalized, we had lots of friends and things, but... Nobody came to visit me. Everybody's busy. Yeah. And visiting hours end basically at the day that they're... Basically at the time their days ended. Yeah. And so having that community did help me. And then, too, we were in Japan. And my Japanese is busted. So... And I did have some friends in Japan when we even in those early days. But having that community gave me a safe and healthy place 
right. to talk about Porphyria and talk about the different things I was doing and listen to them and hear them talk about what they were doing. And it's really helpful. Yeah. And I think it gave you a sounding place to say, this is happening to me. Does this happen to anybody else too? Yeah. Which let you identify, okay, this is Porphyria. This is not. Yes. And so I didn't go to a group for the lupus because I feel like the Porphyria group really helped me understand Porphyria. And I had a good understanding of lupus already right. before I was diagnosed. And Because your father has lupus. Yeah. Well, my father has never said to me that he has lupus. My mother told me that my father has lupus. I took your father to the VA. Your father has lupus. Okay. <laughs> Well, he's never said to me, my, so that's for another podcast. Um, but because my mother told me, hey, your father has lupus, you're probably going to develop lupus. Yeah. I had always looked into it and had an understanding of what lupus was. So I feel like having lupus and being aware of lupus, that changed my behavior enough that it helped my porphyria because they have a lot of the same triggers. Yes. Like things that will trigger attacks. So that was really helpful and lucky. I feel like for you with when you were first, not so much with the epilepsy, but I feel like when you were first diagnosed with autism mm -hmm. and we were looking on the internet for groups, I feel like it was really helpful to find out what other people's experiences were. How was that for you? I think this was back in 99 and it was too early for there to be much of a community of autistic people on the internet. Yeah. I think that there were a lot of autistic people on the internet, but there wasn't a community of them. And we found like a couple like message boards. Most of those message boards were populated by parents of kids with autism, which is a whole other thing that I'm not going to get into on this on this podcast, but yeah. I didn't find it particularly helpful. What I did find helpful was understanding it in myself and also seeing that like I had friends that I could say with fairly high certainty, okay, if they are not autistic, they are very autistic like. Yeah. And this was before neurotribes came out and before autism became more widely known it was yeah. just before the self-diagnosis questionnaire came out so yeah yeah i think now i have a lot of friends in the autism community online and that's very helpful for me so i think at the time of my diagnosis it wasn't very helpful okay but now it is very helpful well i guess for me it was helpful because you were reading a lot of really bad books books yes. that i would tell you babe as an expert it, working in this field don't read that book yes <laughs> because you would read these books and then start telling me my experience of being your wife well because that's one group there was there was a group of like people being i forget what the exact name of it was basically people being tortured by their autistic spouses <laughs> and i told you that this is not my experience you are very loving you are very affectionate you are very kind and you are very generous and I am very happily married. Me and too. And so, thank you. I'll take that. And so for me, I think talking, having you to talk through these things with has been very helpful, but also having people to 
juxtapose my experience with has been helpful. Yes. And I think, too, with with epilepsy, I felt like we didn't really have any good resources. And now we do. But back, back then, we didn't for your specific type of epilepsy. And I felt, sometimes I felt very alone when you would doubt that you were epileptic. And I would tell you my experience because you're not present for your seizures. I right. am. And so that whole process of doubting, well, am I epileptic? And I'm like, yes, you are. Don't doubt. And you say, but I don't think I'm having seizures. And I'm like, I've been watching you have seizures. That whole process, I'm happy that we have trust. We have a very trusting marriage and a very loving marriage that you're able to say, okay, I don't remember this thing. I didn't have that experience, but I don't think you would make up the fact that I'm having seizures. And then we had to develop like our own way of showing you verifying and validating because to me i don't know it's a therapist to me i'm like don't just trust what i say let's let's get some sort of system in place so that you can know this for yourself so it can be your own truth yes and so for me it's been really helpful to have you that's really nice yeah Yeah. we're a community of two Yes, we are. So the message of today's cast is fight for yourself. Advocate for yourself. Don't... And recruit friends and let them fight for you and advocate for you too. Yeah. Build a tribe. Get a village. <laughs> I don't, so for uh, me, Twitter... I'll let you say that, I guess. Yeah. No, for me, Twitter allows us to have a village. Yes, it does. So I absolutely love Twitter. I yes. think Twitter's an awesome place to meet people. Um, and get like-minded individuals together and get support and understanding. I agree. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can keep the conversation going on our website at themusicsinjapan.com. That's the music spelled M-U-S-I-C-K-S. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at the Musics on both. And if you'd like to support us, please visit our website to sign up for our newsletter, join a Patreon tier, or send us a one-time donation through PayPal or Ko-fi. We hope you'll listen again next week. Bye.